Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garda. It's Thursday, February 17th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. Dr. Robert Califf has now officially been confirmed as FDA commissioner. STAT's Nick Florco joins us to discuss the biggest decisions that Califf will face this year. Next, a partnership between a CRISPR pioneer and a $60 billion Wall Street firm. Damian and I talk with Dr. Jennifer Doudna and Six Street's Marty Chavez about the future of gene editing and the investments they plan to make in it. We'll start with a look at the biggest news of the week in biopharma, but first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, Chief Operating Officer at STAT. Thanks for listening. As the company that pioneered the biotech industry, Genentech is known for asking and answering big scientific questions. I'm joined by the company's Chief Diversity Officer, Quita Highsmith, to hear why asking tough questions about health inequity can be a powerful driver of change. Thanks, Angus. As marginalized communities continue to be hit hardest by the pandemic, The need to tackle systemic inequity has never been more urgent. We need to stop tiptoeing around the issues of race and health disparities and shine a spotlight on the uncomfortable truths. Why are clinical trials 85% white? Why should your health be defined by your zip code? We at Genentech are investing deeply and partnering across the healthcare ecosystem to help dismantle the status quo. Visit gene.com slash askbiggerquestions to learn more. That's G-E-N-E dot com slash askbiggerquestions. We have a pretty packed show this week with a lot of guests we want to get to, but I think it makes sense to start with a couple of things that we were previewing last week, one of which went largely the way we expected and one of which very much did not. So last week we were preparing to spend this episode talking about an FDA, a public FDA meeting covering whether COVID vaccines uh, would be cleared for children as young as five. We are not doing that. Meg, what happened? Well, so Friday, you know, Friday morning, we're all sitting in front of our computers, hitting refresh on FDA's website, where it was going to post the documents ahead of that February 15th meeting of its outside advisors to review Pfizer's application for its vaccine for kids under five. And hours go by and nothing is posted. And this isn't totally unusual for the pandemic because a lot of these are kind of pulled together last minute and they're still putting together the documents. And so nobody really suspected anything or thought too much of it. But then in the early afternoon, both the FDA and Pfizer came out with statements essentially saying the Tuesday meeting is delayed and the review of Pfizer's application is also going to be pushed off until they get data on three doses of this vaccine. And just to recap, you know, about two weeks previously, we'd been told, okay, the FDA actually has enough data because of the Omicron surge to review what the vaccine looks like after only two doses. And we were reassured by federal health officials that this 
this was going to show uh, that, you know, the vaccine was essentially safe and effective with just two doses, effective enough at least that the FDA could review it and potentially clear it. And the CDC was even sending out guidance to uh, vaccine providers suggesting they could get their first doses delivered by President's Day. So then this announcement comes out and it was very mysterious. They didn't give a lot of details about why this happened. The FDA then held a press briefing and Helen Branswell, as always, asked the best question on the entire briefing. She picked up on some wording that Dr. Peter Marks from the FDA said, which was essentially something like, we're not going to go forward with data that are you know, insufficient to support a review or something like that. And so she noted, well, were the, so the, were the data insufficient to support the review? And while he wouldn't even confirm that, it seemed clear that two doses were no longer going to be enough to feel confident, you know, in the FDA clearing the vaccine now. So we're back to waiting for three doses of data, which should come in in early April. Um, if those look good, then we could see, you know, the FDA review process go from there. The one thing that could potentially change the timeline here is that Moderna's data for the vaccine for two to five-year-olds are expected in March. And Moderna's vaccine is a much higher dose, 25 micrograms, uh, two doses, um, compared with Pfizer's, which is just three micrograms, and now they're going to three doses of that. So we'll see how that works. Moderna also still doesn't have clearance for the vaccine for kids ages 12 to 17. They haven't filed for kids ages 5 to 11 as they wait for that clearance from the FDA. So there's a lot of question marks and a lot of parents feeling really whiplashed right now. What a mess. Yeah. <laughs> that's, my re that's my reaction. That's my reaction to this. What a mess. <laughs> well, there was a much tidier, I think, conclusion to the other thing we were watching with the FDA last week, which was the Lily Innovent Adcom. And Adam, following your Twitter on this was really fascinating. Tell us what happened at that meeting and maybe recap what, what that was about. Right. Yes. Yeah, so this is another FDA public meeting that was held last week uh, on Thursday. And if you recall, this was a meeting that the FDA was convening to review a a cancer immunotherapy that was developed by uh, Innovent, a Chinese pharmaceutical company in partnership with Eli Lilly. Uh, the big controversy here was all the data um, compiled on this drug came from China, from a clinical trial that was conducted in, conducted in China, positive study. Uh, in lung cancer. Um, but the big question was whether or not the FDA would accept data conducted entirely in China uh, for approval here in the United States. We knew going in that it was probably the answer to that question was going to be no. And sure enough, that was the outcome of this meeting. I think the thing that was really surprising to me about this meeting was just the, I want to call it like a public humiliation of Innovent and Eli Lilly in the hands of uh, not only uh, Rick Pastor, who runs the FDA's uh, oncology review branch, but his one of his chief deputies, uh, Dr. Harpreet Singh, the two of them who kind of uh, who kind of led the meeting, um, really stuck it to Lilly and Innovent um, in a way that I, I thought it was over the top. Um, you know, we went into this knowing that part of this meeting was intended to send a message to the pharmaceutical industry, particularly US-based uh, pharma and biotech companies, who um, were now un under the mistaken impression that uh, you know data conducted entirely in China would be OK uh, and suitable for approval here. Um, and 
you know that 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 message was sent loud and clear. Um, but in a way that I I, I did think that this got a little weirdly personal. Um, and I think you know if I sort of I'm going to put. Uh, Rick Pazder on the couch a little bit, you know, um, part of this, you know, part of the reason why there was a lot of this confusion about this was some comments that he made back in 2019, where he seemed to sort of welcome uh, the entry of of China based uh, counter drugs into the United States, particularly when it came to the idea that maybe they would be sold at a discount and that it would help with pricing issues here in the United States. And I think he's probably regretting those statements that he made. And, um, you know, again, sort of took it out on Lily and Innovin. It, 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 like I said, I thought I thought it was over the top. I I was kind of surprised by some of the what seemed like really deeply personal attacks against the company, not only like against their ethics and about the way they do things, which I thought was kind of unnecessary. Wow. Did the so part of the whole idea here was introducing, you know, these cancer drugs tested in China could allow for a pathway to make to introduce cheaper cancer medicines, essentially, to the U.S. market. The FDA stated plainly that it's not part of its purview. But did that topic kind of come up at all throughout the course of the day? You know, it was funny. At the very beginning of the meeting, they sort of made it explicitly clear that, you know, they were not allowed, they were not going to discuss price and that they basically asked all of the participants in the in the meeting not to discuss price. So it really, you know, it didn't really come up um, as a kind of a debate topic, although it did like at the very end. So there was, you know, there's a vote at the end and um, there was one one expert, one oncologist who uh, voted basically, basically voting the thought that the data were suitable. And in his kind of closing remarks to explain his his kind of dissenting vote, um, he did bring up the fact that, uh, you know, that price that price was important, that there was a lot of discussion about, uh, you know, the need for diversity uh, in clinical trials in terms of like the kind of patients you want patients in clinical trials to resemble, you know, the what patients look like br- more broadly. Right. So, you know, his point was, is that, you know, if, if we bring lower price drugs to the United States, that also helps. It helps with access. Finally, this week, as a follow up to last week's lengthy conversation about Eric Lander and his scandal-motivated resignation from the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, I wanted to plug one this morning, a story from Stats Lev Fasher that talked to people within that office about what it was like working for Lander, which has some um, pretty striking uh, anecdotes that people shared. And then two, the news that he has effectively been replaced by two people. So uh, former NIH director Francis Collins will end his very brief retirement to serve as the White House science advisor, which was one of Lander's roles. And then at OSTP itself, Alondra Nelson, who had served as Lander's deputy in that office, will become temporary director. It only took 11 months to nominate someone and three more to convince a fractured Senate to confirm him. But President Biden finally has a permanent FDA commissioner. Dr. Robert Califf, who held the same job under President Obama, won over a narrow margin of senators and will be sworn back into office this week, just in time to preside over some of the most contentious decisions in recent FDA history. Joining us to discuss the months ahead for the new FDA boss is Stats Nicholas Florco, who has been covering this saga for what feels like a decade. Nick, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me back. 
You wrote a story for uh, Stat this week looking at the upcoming FDA approval decisions that will set the course for Califf's first year back at the agency. Uh, we won't make you read that on air, but I wanted to ask you about a particularly explosive issue coming up pretty soon. And one I'm actually really interested in, too, is the decision about the ALS drug. Yeah. So for some background, ALS advocates have been, rapidly become sort of some of the most vocal critics of the FDA in recent years because they've argued that the FDA has unfairly kept drugs that could prolong their lives from getting approved. And this goes back to the debate over right to try during the Trump administration. I mean, that was largely led by ALS patients and, and their activists has continued since then. And it's gotten pretty nasty. And Califf almost assuredly will face off with ALS advocates because, as you alluded to, Adam, there's a, a big approval decision coming up. And the FDA is set to decide whether to approve Amelix Pharmaceuticals, ALS drug. Uh, I believe it's in June. And there's a long and tumultuous history with this drug. The FDA actually told Amelix back in uh, back last year that despite positive phase two, three data, that it needed to run another late stage trial before potentially getting the drug approved. And that prompted major backlash from patients until the FDA decided to reverse course and let the agency file an application. And it was announced yesterday that the agency is going to hold an advisory panel to discuss the drug in March. And ALS patients and their families, they're going to flood this hearing and they're going to appeal to the FDA to approve this drug. And while Califf's unlikely to weigh in on the actual approval decision, he's almost certainly going to be blamed if things don't go the way that patients want. Well, that's such a fascinating sort of precursor thinking about what happened with the Sarepta situation because Califf was commissioner during that time as well. And he kind of took issue with descriptions by like Matt Herper, uh, who at the time was in Forbes as it being a civil war within FDA. Um, I remember he kind of was just like, this isn't as interesting as everybody thinks it is. But it actually was really, really interesting. And it all is seeming to happen in that same neurology division. And that brings this is, of course, to Adjuhelm, the Biogen Alzheimer's drug, which Califf, of course, had nothing to do with the approval of since it happened this past June, but he's inheriting the backlash against that as well. And senators grilled him about the pathway used to approve it, which is also the subject of a federal investigation. So how do you expect Califf to kind of deal with all of these issues kind of coming together, the scrutiny over accelerated approvals, and also just, just all of the tension happening around its neurodivision? I mean, it's hard to know specifically how he's going to deal with the controversy around Adjahelm. He's stayed relatively quiet on it. Um, I personally really doubt there's going to be any sort of widespread change to how the FDA deals with accelerated approvals. I mean, Caleb was asked about accelerated approval during his confirmation process, and, and he made clear that he's a fan of the pathway overall. I mean, he's made some vague pledges to go after companies who haven't made good on their promises to run follow-up trials. So we'll likely see some action there, but at least in oncology, I mean, that there's already been a push to do that work. I mean, you're probably going to see more work like that, but I very much doubt that Caleb's going to walk in on the first day and say, you know, these are the new criteria we're going to use for accelerated approval and we're going to walk back the Agilehome decision or anything like that. Like none of that sort of crazy, uh, you know, major change is going to happen. I think you're just going to see some tweaks around the edges. So the other FDA news this week, at least in terms of leadership, is that Janet Woodcock, who has been at the agency for more than three decades and has been the acting commissioner since uh, President Biden was inaugurated, that she accepted a job basically as Califf's number two at the FDA. And I was curious, does that does that tell us anything going forward that, that he would offer her that position? And is this sort of like a victory lap after a long career at FDA, or, or does it seem like she will actually have a real authorial role uh, in the agency moving forward? 
I don't think it's a victory lap per se. I mean, Califf did get some flack for bringing Woodcock back. I mean, senators were citing stats reporting that Califf offered her as a, a job as a reason to vote against him. So I don't think you'd offer someone a job like that just as a symbolic gesture if you knew that it could jeopardize you getting confirmed. And, I mean, if we look at the past and the role that she's playing, I mean, Janet took on a pretty large role. Like you said, Damien, it's, it's basically the FDA's second in command. And the last person that had that job, Amy Abernathy, took on things like charting a path for the FDA to regulate CBD and revamping the agency's IT structures, these sort of like sweeping initiatives that touch all parts of the agency. Um, and so we don't know what Janet will take on yet, but she's not being given a small role. I mean, that's for sure. Nick, as you wrote in the story this week, you know, Kayla's confirmation was the narrowest in FDA history. Do you think that comes back to haunt him as the FDA takes positions on some controversial upcoming, you know, decisions and topics? I mean, it's complicated. So I bet senators do chew him out for some decisions. I mean, especially folks like like Joe Manchin, who made clear that they really don't think that Califf can do anything right, quite frankly. But I don't think that the thin margin of him being confirmed will actually impact the FDA's ability to navigate Congress to sort of pass major must-pass legislation. Uh, I mean, to give you an example, Congress has to pass new user fee agreements that basically keep the FDA's doors open. But the lawmakers that actually play a major role in that process, those that are on the committee with oversight over the FDA, they love Califf. And they were the driving force behind wrangling votes to get him confirmed. So they're definitely not going to hold up sort of that process. But, I mean, Califf will have to deal with some nasty letters and some nasty things said about him on the Senate floor. I mean, there's definitely going to be that because he was confirmed by such a narrow margin and people have such strong opinions about him. But I do think that now that he's in the chair, he should be able to largely go about his work uh, because, frankly, those people don't matter as much now that he's, he's in the chair. So back in November, when the White House first nominated Califf, you wrote that Califf had unfinished business at the FDA after his brief initial tenure. So what might he have planned now that he's back, do you think? So the big one that always stands out with Rob Califf is revamping how the FDA collects the evidence uh, evidence on the products that it regulates. I mean, Califf was pretty explicit about this during his confirmation hearing. He said, now is the time to develop a systematic approach, approach to evidence generation uh, and as one of the world's top clinical trial experts, he's always talking up this idea. I mean, during his last confirmation hearing during the Obama administration, he called it his one true professional love. Um, but who knows really what that looks like in practice? I mean, Califf pitched a pretty vague idea of this evidence generation collaborative during his first time at the FDA, but it never really got off the ground. I wouldn't be surprised if we see Califf pitch the same sort of big idea, amorphous idea on data collection. That's sort of his calling card. Uh, the other piece of unfinished business that I think is really important to note is just the FDA's work on tobacco. Uh, Califf has been pretty vocal since leaving the FDA about how he thinks that the FDA should handle tobacco issues. I mean, he even called for a ban on over-the-counter vaping products. And the FDA still has a lot of decisions to make on uh, on vaping. I mean, it said it's promised that it's going to ban menthol cigarettes. It has to decide on Juul's application um, for vapes. It has to deal with this issue of synthetic nicotine that's popping up. These are all idea, uh, all issues that Califf is going to play a role in. And he's made it very clear that he thinks the FDA should take a more forceful stance on tobacco. So that's definitely one that I'm going to be watching. 
And Nick, for a second, I just want to go back to the ALS drug and particularly, you know, the, the advisory panel that's going to be held on March 30th because our buddy Billy Dunn, who runs the neuroscience division at FDA, is the guy who's in charge of that review. As everyone knows, he you know, also was in charge of the Adjuhelm review. So it'll be interesting to see uh, how Billy handles uh, this ALS drug, uh, you know, and, and contrasting it or maybe seeing how it, it may differ or be similar to how he dealt with the uh, with the Alzheimer's situation with Adjuhelm. Yeah, I'm really interested to see that too, because I mean, when we, you know, listeners might remember that, you know, Stat wrote a big profile on Billy Dunn after the Adjuhelm decision. And I talked to a lot of ALS advocates for that story, folks that had met with Billy Dunn, and they had, uh, they had very strong opinions about him. Let's just put it that way. Uh, you know, one one uh, advocate who was a real driving force of the right to try law back during the Trump administration. I mean, he was making Facebook posts, you know, criticizing Billy Dunn, demanding that he apologize to him. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to see sort of the the tone of that meeting and how Billy Dunn navigates what is likely to be some vitriol from from advocates who felt that he's wronged them before. Nick, thanks as always for joining us. Thanks for having me. know Jennifer Doudna as the Nobel Prize-winning pioneer of CRISPR gene editing, the subject of Walter Isaacson's last book, The Codebreaker, and or as a professor at the University of California, Berkeley, among many other titles. Now she's added another to that list, chief science advisor to the Wall Street firm Sixth Street, where she's expected to help guide investment decisions around CRISPR and genome editing. Sixth Street manages $60 billion in assets, and its vice chairman is Marty Chavez, former chief information officer at Goldman Sachs, who's also on the board of the Broad Institute and serves on the Stanford Medicine Board of Fellows. Both Jennifer and Marty now join us to discuss this partnership and how it came about. Welcome to The Read Out Loud. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Marty, let's start with you. How did this partnership come together? It uh, came together through one of our partners, Jamie Gates, who has been talking with Jennifer and developing a a relationship, a friendship over some period of time. And uh, then, oh, I don't know, it was maybe last summer, Jennifer, and perhaps it was in the fall when you and I finally had a chance to meet in person. There was that, that brief window when it seemed like the pandemic had receded and we had a lovely dinner at Jamie's home uh, in the Bay Area. And that's when we really, we really clicked. So Jennifer, as we kind of laid out at the outset, you have a great number of calls on your time nowadays. So what made you decide to jump into this and to spend some of that finite time um, working on this stuff? As passionate as I am about my academic research program, I can see that there's a huge future opportunity for genome editing as it intersects with computational biology. I think many, many people appreciate this, and we're all trying to figure out exactly where those opportunities are. But to really make that happen, first of all, and secondly, to make sure that those intersections have major impact on solving some of the, the world's uh, most important problems and making our lives better in the future, we need to appropriately capitalize those, those opportunities and the teams that are going to do that kind of development. And I couldn't imagine a better partner than Sixth Street to make that possible. 
So, Marty, you know, this obviously signals a big bet for Sixth Street on CRISPR and the gene editing space. Uh, just thinking about it, you know, from the, the stock perspective, looking at some of the stocks in CRISPR, although uh, Jennifer's co-founded company, Intelia, is an exception to this, many of the CRISPR companies have seen their stocks fall 50% or more over the last year or so. So maybe we've kind of been through a bit of a CRISPR bubble. What makes you feel like right now is the time to be really diving into this in a bigger way? Of course, we we look at the stock prices, and yet uh, one thing I learned early on in Wall Street, we received some great advice, which was to keep our eyes on the forward point, not on the spot volatility. You really have to you have to look at both, and so the way we're thinking about it, and this also gets personal for me, um, I've been. Uh, working on this idea of building high-fidelity digital twins of scientific and business realities really all my, all my life. Uh, strangely, I got started on it when I was 15. I was working in Albuquerque, New Mexico at the Air Force Weapons Lab, and right around that time, it was my very first job, summer job, uh, the government had this idea, let's, let's stop blowing up bombs in the Nevada desert. It's upsetting people. It's dangerous. And maybe we can just simulate the bombs on supercomputers. And that crazy idea worked out really, really well. And really I've just been doing that same thing ever since. And then I went on to an MD PhD program at Stanford, AI and Medicine, uh, which was a fascinating experience, but 30 years too early. The compute power was just too low to do anything meaningful. And so we are having that golden age, that intersection that Jennifer referenced of computational biology, and it's happening right now. That is the huge, exciting, secular trend that's going to go on as long as anyone can see and completely dwarfs any spot volatility happening in stock prices at the moment. I was up to perhaps considerably less interesting things as a 15-year-old in Albuquerque, New Mexico, but it's good to know that at least one of us made something out of it. Uh, I was going to ask you, Jennifer, you know, you mentioned... Um, so many of the the really cool ideas in this space, they're so capital intensive. And so part of the allure was to to be on the side that might steer um, the money necessary to to actualize these things toward the ones that are are deserving of it. So can you give us kind of a, a glimpse at like, what do you think some of the most promising areas in genome editing are that, that deserve attention and, and deserve the ability to grow? Broadly speaking, I would say, you know, we can think about healthcare, sort of clinical medicine applications, you know, and I, I guess I would put diagnostics in that bucket as well. Uh, we could think about opportunities in synthetic biology and all of the, you know, amazing uh, advancements that are happening in that area right now. And then uh, the third area is is agriculture and, um, and, and frankly, dealing with the existential threat of climate change. Um, in the near term, we're already seeing, you know, very exciting uh, developments in the healthcare space. I think many people listening to the podcast today are probably familiar with some of the ongoing clinical trials and the announcements that have been made about uh, the, you know, the advancements with, with CRISPR to treat sickle cell disease and, and uh, other blood disorders, to treat liver disease, to treat eye disease. I mean, it's it's been really exciting over the last couple of years to see those results. Uh, CRISPR diagnostics, you know, there was uh, the FDA just uh, issued a, an emergency use authorization for a CRISPR-based uh, diagnostic test for 
COVID-19 for SARS-CoV-2 virus detection. That's a laboratory test uh, company uh, called um, Mammoth Biosciences that is doing that work. And again, lots of players in that space. That, that this will be the first of many, I'm sure. And you know, lot, lots of exciting advancements there. And then, you know, we're really in the early days, I would say, of applications in agriculture. And I, but I still firmly believe that probably, at least in the next decade or so, that's probably the area where we're going to see the most growth and where we're potentially going to see the biggest worldwide impact. Uh, you know, people often ask me, how, how is CRISPR going to affect me personally? And, and probably for many of us, it's first going to be affecting us in terms of either the uh, fruits and veggies we're, we're uh, getting at the market or uh, and or, you know, the way that we are, um, you know, interacting in the environment and, and controlling the damage that's coming from uh, climate change. Hmm. The, the, as always, when you think about CRISPR, your mind just gets blown <laughs> <laughs> the potential of what could come. Um, you know, thinking about the way science gets funded, you know, we traditionally think about the NIH playing a huge role there. And, you know, more recently, private investors have been getting involved in earlier stages of the process. And as Damien's pointed out, it, it's accelerated a lot of good ideas, but it's also made businesses out of some things that maybe haven't been ready for prime time. So Marty, what do you think is sort of the ideal role for an institution like Sixth Street when it comes to cutting edge sciences like genome editing? The, the way we get to it at 6th Street is um, we, ha we have a couple of, of, of advantages in our design and structure. So our capital is flexible, and it's flexible because we've earned the trust of our investors over time by delivering reliable returns through our sourcing, through our underwriting process. And that lets us operate at scale, and that lets us participate in all kinds of different partnerships and structures and, and, and business structures. So that's the first thing. And the second is rather than sort of the traditional financial investing equity long short, as an example, we have thematic investing and we've identified some themes um, that we see as being huge secular trends. And, and Jennifer touched on them, therapeutics and pharma and biotech, healthcare data and tech, pharma services. And for us to be great partners to scientists and engineers who are working to translate scientific advances into therapies and diagnostics for patients, we need to be deep experts ourselves. And so for us, that, that is I mean, it's pretty, pretty obvious actually why this, this uh, partnership with Jennifer is so hugely important. No one has more credibility as, as Jennifer likes to say, she very, very modestly that she didn't invent CRISPR, but uh, discovered the bacteria while they were in the process of doing CRISPR, right? That kind of domain expertise is, is essential. And that's how we're going to make the right decisions and the right allocation of capital to the right management teams who will differentiate themselves. So I have kind of a question on broader on the culture of science, I guess, you know, the the Eric Lander resignation from the White House Science Office, obviously a major news event in recent days over bullying behavior, it seems like it's seeded a lot of conversations about the human side of research. And there's been some cautious and perhaps optimistic optimism that such a high profile apology from a high profile scientist might maybe just a little move the needle in terms of how people treat each other in the course of research. And so my question, Jennifer, you, know, you spent decades in academic labs. 
What do you think? Like, is there a positive spin on this news cycle? Damien, I think I think when when a challenge occurs, it's also an opportunity. That's how I, I like to think about it. And and I think in this instance, a hopefully we collectively learn from this. And and secondly, as you just said, that it's also a chance to maybe move the needle in a meaningful way to change the way that again all of us are conducting our work and just you know, re- revisiting and remembering how it feels to be someone who is, you know, struggling in the lab, you know, trying to get, make, you know, get, get started in science. Um, many, many folks don't have the advantages that, that others do. And so you really want to make sure that everybody has an opportunity to, you know, to, to make their way and to, to, to do well. That's kind of a core, you know, at least it used to be a core uh, principle of America, I felt. You know, when I was growing up, there was always a sense that, you know, if you worked hard, um, you could you could you could do well, you know, even if you didn't have a lot of money or, or other kinds of privileges. And so, you know, I, I just think that the more that all of us in science can enable that kind of free exchange, and it, it frankly, it doesn't happen if there's a, you know, if there's a kind of a bullying culture, I don't think I don't think people feel free to you know, to contribute that way. And so I think we really need to work to create a more, uh, you know, a more welcoming culture because actually it's better for the science. So Marty, I was going to ask you, you know, your, your proximate experience was in finance, but particularly on the tech side of things. And I remember reading when you left Goldman uh, in 2019, I guess, there was some speculation you might land at a software company. That's not how it played out. So I'm curious, what was the allure of the life sciences? When I retired from Goldman after many, many years in 2019, I uh, spoke to a wonderful reporter at the Wall Street Journal, and, uh, and she had a great tagline, which was the right line to, to have paid attention to, um, where I said, I spent the last 25 years making money and capital programmable, and I'd like to spend the next 25 years making life programmable. And so that was really me almost hanging out a shingle and saying, I really uh, wanted to get back to my roots in the life sciences and specifically the intersection of life sciences and software. And uh, that's something that I, as I mentioned, I wanted to do 30 years ago, uh, but the computers just couldn't, couldn't handle it. Yep. So what's exciting is, yes, I'm a computer scientist, but I've always had this fantasy of applying techniques and data and data science and algorithmic driven problem solving to the problems of life, the hardest, most interesting problems. And there's been some false starts, but now we are actually able to do it. We have actual therapies and actual results. And I think we're just at the very beginning of it. Incredibly exciting. Jennifer Marty, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us, Damien and Meg. Great to see you, Marty. It's been such a pleasure as always, Jennifer, Damien, Meg. Thank you. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Embonato and Eliza Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and what you think about what Dr. Robert Califf has on his plate as FDA commissioner this year. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.